Welcome to Celluloid Citizens, a podcast about film. I'm Sean M. Thompson. And I'm Brian O'Connell. And on this, our third episode, we will be discussing the 2018 film Suspiria, directed by Luca Gattagnino. Gattagnino, yeah. yeah. And written by, it's, uh, I guess you could say it's a remake of a uh, Dario Argento film from the 70s. Mm-hmm. I would say more of a reimagining, because it's not really like a shot-for-shot remake. Definitely not. And the script was by David Kajenich. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> Chloe Grace Moretz, and yeah. Starring Dakota Johnson, Tilda Swinton, and Mia Goth. Yeah, so there's a lot of characters in this film. And Lutz Ebersdorf, if we're counting him. I forgot to mention this with Enemy. I forgot to mention the cinematographer of that film. So Mm -hmm. right at the beginning of this one, I'm going to mention that the cinematography, which is beautiful, by the way, was by Sayambu Mukdiprom. And good. So I got that out of the way so we can actually start talking about the film now. I know you love this movie. Yeah, full disclosure at the top of this uh at the top of this episode. I don't I don't I never say that I have favorite films like ranked or anything, but since about last year, my go-to response is that if if a gun is put to my head and I have to name my favorite film, uh this this would be it for me. I'm totally enamored with it. I've seen it many times at this stage, and it's, you know, a, quite quite a bit of praise for me for a two-and-a-half-hour, bleak, depressing movie. Because, it, yeah, it is a long movie. Oh, yes. Very, very... And longer than most horror movies, certainly, which this is a horror movie um, of a somewhat unconventional sort. But I would say so, yes. But definitely a horror movie. And has a lot of bizarre historical context and like information packed into it that I mean, frankly, uh this movie and Annihilation, with both of which I saw in theaters, while watching both of those movies, I was just kind of mystified that this had somehow made its way to like general audiences and wasn't playing in, in like an art house theater or something. Well, to be fair with Annihilation, that was a, from what I've heard, that was sort of a rocky road. Oh, yes. Like, they got into theaters, but there was something about how they didn't do foreign. Yeah, they... they... It was something like, instead of doing uh, in foreign cinemas, they just decided to go to Netflix, which I don't even think went through. I think they ended up being on Prime or something. I, I, I had read, and I may not be getting this exactly right, but... The Paramount producers were extremely frustrated with the ending, which anyone who has seen the film knows that it's a very weird, mind-bending ending. Annihilation this is, yeah. Yes, yes, Annihilation. And they ultimately dumped the movie in February, which is a bad time uh, to release movies in theaters. Yeah, that's like the death block, because it's right after the Oscars. and they sold the international rights to Netflix, and from that point, they may have been jiggled around a bit to various distributors, but they did not, uh, they weren't pleased with the product, so the rollout was very weird. Yeah, which is almost a case for, I don't know what people's specific opinions are about streaming services doing original films but you can't deny the fact that this was a very unique esoteric film that might not have had 
the life it's had if it wasn't so heavily featured on a streaming service. Yes, this is a uh, Suspiria we're talking about now. Suspiria, yes, because yeah. it was put out by Amazon Studios. There is some interview um, with Guadagnino, and uh, he mentioned an anecdote of some intern at Amazon seeing the movie and being utterly mystified as to why Amazon had chosen this project of all projects to to produce because it's just. I mean, I think it's worth mentioning um, as well that the critical response to this film has been extremely polarized. I would assume, yeah. It's, there are a lot of people, I would really say most people regard it as uh, bloated, overlong, um, confusing, dull. <laughs> like, these are the adjectives I was seeing um, when the first reviews were coming in. And at the same time, there is a very devoted group of people who really enjoy the film and champion the film. I'll admit the first time I saw this, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to take in. So I think the first time I saw it, when I was done, I was just kind of like, I don't even know if I like that. Yeah. Like I appreciated it, but I wasn't even... So I went back uh, this week and rewatched it, mm-hmm. and I was pleasantly surprised to, to learn like, oh, okay, I'm still enjoying this. So the first time it was just like, there was so much yeah what what the hell is happening that like it's almost well uh t- too much to take in and and that's but that's one of the things so one of the reasons it's received a lot of flack is because it is almost nothing like the Dario Argento film on which it is based no and i I would like to mention briefly the Argento film because I'm a fan of both films. Mm, I, and obviously I saw the um, Argento Suspiria first. I, I have not. I mean, this is kind of shameful to admit, but I have not yet seen Argento's version of the story. The Argento version is very different in that it's it's very colorful. Like there's a lot of red and blue and pink gels. Um, I would say... The Argento version is much more... I mean, most of Argento's films... I think he even admitted at one point, he's like, I kind of go off of shot ideas. I don't really go off of plot. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard as well. so even less so than this 2018 Suspiria, like... Mm -hmm. I I could not really tell you. The plot of the 70s Suspiria is woman goes to dance school. Many other women are killed in horrible ways. There is probably a witch... The end. That's sort of it. It's more you're just looking at it um, just visually. Yeah. Like, it's very striking with the reds and the blues, and the architecture is really cool, and some of the uh, the kills are Crazy yeah, kills. really interesting. Like, he loves to do... He loves to, like, hang people or, like, have someone get stabbed on a window sill. He loves breaking glass for some reason. <laughs> well, but so... So regardless of the differences between the two, um, I've read that, I mean, obviously Argento's film is very aggressive and in your face and, you know, um, hard to take in. It is. It's very... And, And, you know, while it may do it in a different way, I think in its own way, the 2018 version is also very maximalist if that makes sense in that it it isn't like you know the kind of crazy insane kills in argento's version but it is still 
providing a pretty uncompromising vision to you um, that is hard to unpack and might put a lot of people off, which... I mean, there is one scene in particular which we should go oh, into. Yes. I would, the first really heavy uh, gore scene. Yeah. That is still really hard to watch for someone even like myself who's in his 30s who's been a horror fan since he was 12. Yeah. When I, uh, when I saw the scene in theaters... I, the first time I just, at, at a, after a certain point, just covered my eyes and ears because I was like, it's having, just a lot to take in. I was like on the edge of a panic attack and I was still dealing with that, you know, like 20 minutes later because it's so extreme, which I guess we should describe what, what occurs um, in the scene. Basically, the simplest way to put it is that Dakota Johnson's character, uh, Susie, it's... <clears throat> well, so so some, I guess some general plot context. Uh, yeah, yeah, because that's this, important. Because this occurs about like half an hour into the film, maybe 40 minutes. Something like that, yeah. Um, uh, Dakota Johnson is Susie Benian, who grew up on a Mennonite farm in, uh, I guess, the Midwest or... Oh, Ohio. Ohio, I think. Yeah very repressive religious upbringing and she travels to berlin in the 1970s to be a part of this dance company obviously berlin at this time it was divided by the wall um and there was a lot of terrorism going around which the film also touches on with the batter meinhof group um but she she enters this company like a very old and respected company. And I guess this isn't really a spoiler because they kind of flat out tell you in the first five minutes, but the company is run by a coven of witches. Yeah, the the Marcos dance company. In this scene, uh, the lead dancer, Olga, has just accused uh, the teacher, Madame Blanc, who is played excellently by Tilda Swinton, of having something to do with the disappearance of a student, Patricia. And she calls them witches, exits the room, and then Dakota Johnson steps up to dance. Uh, and Olga is locked in a room, in another room in the basement. Yes, there's this room that's entirely surrounded by mirrors. Which is provides a particularly memorable effect for the moments to come. And Blanc does something to Susie's hands. So when Susie starts dancing, every one of her motions has like a kind of voodoo doll effect on the other woman in the mirrored room. And she's getting smashed against the glass, uh, bones breaking, uh, her jaw pops out. At one. It's, it, it's very uh, graphic and extreme. Yeah, it basically looks like she has almost every bone in her body broken. Yeah, she's, and, and she she's urinating. Yeah, and she doesn't it's, die either is the thing. She's still alive for no. all of it. You know, like another horror film might have this happen, but it would be a lot shorter and the person would just die. Yeah, it's it's drawn out for like two full minutes. It's, I think one of the things that made it so awful to watch is actually just the lack of blood. There isn't. There is no blood, no. I mean, the 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 girl's performance, too, 
She really sells. The interesting thing about it is um, they did it with no digital effects, um, and she did most of it with her own body because the actress is actually a contortionist. So it's it's a very impressive, very physical performance on her part. It is. It's. I can imagine this would be the point where a few people were like, no, nope, I'm out. Yeah. I mean, because up until that point, the film is really subdued. It's just kind of general ominous atmosphere with, you know, I love the production design of this film. The, the building uh, of the dance company is like very blocky and, you know, brutalist. I can say as someone who's seen the, uh, the 70s Argento version, um, the difference is, yeah, this is like, this actually looks like a building that would be in Berlin where the, I think it's supposed to be in Berlin in the 70s version, but it's, it's clearly not. And, it, you know, they don't really go into the, um, the political backdrop either. It's just like, this is here. And like, that's all you need to know. This one actually tries to get into the Berlin Wall and all of the political uh, aspects of that time period, which I, I could see some people, even I'm at times not sure if so much needed to be kept. Yeah, I could. I, I That's one of the criticisms I can understand. Um, but for me, I guess my interpretation of the film more thematically is that it is an allegory specifically about where Germany was at this moment in time. Because, and they're not subtle about it necessarily because they keep cutting to the Berlin Wall and they they have those radio reports about the the Bader-Meinhof group, which was, for those who don't know, as, as I didn't going in, um, it was a far-left terrorist group composed mostly of young people who were responding to what they saw as a perceived lingering of Nazism in German society. Okay, yeah, admittedly I didn't know that. I'm not a huge historian. But so I think when you start to... Cons- so this was a period in Germany after the Holocaust where a lot of... Because most of the German people had some involvement with the Nazis, quite a few ex-Nazis were back in you know, public positions and, you know, working in society. And to the student group, this was like fascism was just kind of concealing itself behind, you know, normal society, which is where, so in my interpretation, which is very subjective, the witch coven represents this lingering fascism in German society. Because though they pretend to be, you know, just a dance company, they are actually preying on their students to give new life to Helena Marcus, who is, and, you know, when you see her, I guess we're getting into major spoilers at this point, but when you see her, she's this disgusting blob, really, you know, there are, like, baby's arms attached to her, and she's just, like, covered in... There's a lot going on there, yeah. You get the sense that she's very old and has somehow combined other bodies into her original body. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's just one of those weird details that's included. They never exactly explain, but I guess 
They don't, but in a weird way, she reminded me of a Cenobite from the Hellraiser movie. I think it was the goggles. She has these like black yeah, she just, goggles. She, when you see her, she's totally naked, except she's wearing like goggles or sunglasses or it's, it's kind of almost absurd in, in, a, in, in a way. Oh, yeah. But she's like this dictatorial authoritarian figure that throughout the film, because her body is decaying, she is trying to be placed in the body of a student. And Blanc chooses Susie uh, to be her vessel. I mean, if you want to go into allegory, she could be seen as Germany. Yeah. You know, she, uh, it's like this, this really weathered old society, and they're trying to keep it going by basically feeding young people into it. Yeah, which is why I think the image of, like, students getting disemboweled, getting, as with Olga, like, uh, broken to pieces is very res- resonant with um, the the ideas of the better Meinhof group who saw what they perceived as students being and young people being sacrificed to the spirit of fascism, which is why I think the ultimate big twist of the ending, which is that Susie has not been who she says she is. I don't know if... Well, we can wait and go into it. The exact twist. I mean, yeah, yeah. But basically, I view this conclusion as a young person's attempt to purge society of this toxic influence, like historical influence. Does that, if that makes sense? No, that makes sense. I could see that. I think we should probably try to landscape the film before we go into the ending, because without it, there's. Yeah. Kind of, it seems out of nowhere. It is sort of out of nowhere anyway, but... Well, yeah, we some of the background of the Argento script and the... I mean, we've talked about Thomas de Quincey a little. We have Thomas de Quincey's... Uh, uh, the name is escaping me now. Uh, Suspiria de Profundis? Yes. Is sort of the source material in that I think Argento went through and picked the concept of the three mothers, mm-hmm. Mother Suspirium, Mother Tenabrum, and Mother... Lacrimarum. Lacrimarum. Uh, so he took that, and I think he kind of made it his own. Um, from what I gathered of the De Quincey piece, I don't want to go into it too much, because it went a little over my head. But I don't think it's supposed to be a literal story. It's no. more like personifying the concepts of sorrow and uh, grief and all this other stuff. Yeah, darkness, tears, and sighs. These, I mean, I think he was an opium addict, so just yeah, kind of spaced out visions of like uh, metaphorical concepts and things like that. But it does, when you make them literal, it is very creepy. Yes, oh yes. It's uh, Which is what Argento did for the original Suspiria. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, they're throughout this film. And I actually, in the original Suspiria, do they talk about the three mothers specifically? Or do was that more of a, like a, a retroactive thing that Argento made this trilogy? I'd love to say I remember enough to know, but I recently saw Inferno, which is sort of the spiritual sequel to Suspiria. And they mentioned the three mothers in that. But I I sort of get the sense it was retroactively retrofitted on. In the original, you just know about 
the mother of sorrows, I believe. Sighs. Uh, the mother of sighs. Which is, in that version, Helena Marcus. But in this version, the twist... I mean, I'm getting back into the twist, but... It's fine, we can mention it. But the twist is that the whole time, um, it's Susie, uh, Susie herself who has been uh, Mother Suspiriorum. And, like, I guess the reincarnation or, I don't know, reappearance of her. And that while, you know, Helena Marcos has been claiming to be one of the three mothers, she is actually a total faker. Yeah, she's a fraud. She's obviously a very powerful witch to have lived so long, but she's not one of the original three mothers. And this is when, this is in the final ritual scene, um, when Marcus expects she's going to be transplanted into Susie's body. Susie is like, nope, I'm the third mother, and proceeds to literally explode the heads of everyone who voted for her in the room. And it's a very it's a very interesting scene because for most of the going back to the I don't want to harp too much on the differences between the two Suspirias, but one of the big differences is you get this German block architecture and it's this very kind of harsh lighting for most of the films. There's obviously no red and blue gels. It's just very like indoor lighting. It's shades, shades of, of gray. gray. Yeah, very earthy um and there's a lot of rain which is in the original but like in the original it's off cut with you know the blues and the reds and this time it's just it's just rain you know it's it's rain and then it's snow later on it just gets colder and paler as the film continues so it actually seems like germany i remember there's a shot in the original Suspiria where someone's running around. I'm like, that looks like Rome, but I won't say anything. Yeah, but in this final scene, they kind of do uh, pay homage. But yeah, they just throw, they just, yeah, they just go nuts. It's like the, what I like about it, especially watching this the second time, is it it sort of mirrors what I've heard people describing supernatural events to be like, like reality just melts. Yeah. So the whole style of the film completely changes for this event, which I think when I first saw it, admittedly, I was like, really? Because it goes on a while too. (laughs) It was, you know, for most of the film, excepting those few moments of extreme, you know, death, like with Olga, um, it's really more of like a weird, tense drama almost. And then yeah, in the final moments, you just have, you know, screaming naked women, guts on the floor, like a demon coming up from the bowels of the earth and exploding people's heads. You have an old naked man. Yeah, you have a, most memorably to me, Susie tearing open her chest and exposing like a like a mouth in her heart it's like it's a lot to deal with after it's a lot but when you especially when you've seen it the second time you sort of realize the effect they were going for because once the scene is over it goes right back to the sort of more or less realist style yeah so it's almost like the the shots and the colors and the acting is all mirroring the fact that this is this supernatural event which is fraying reality yeah i've read um some of the screenplay and 
It's described in the description of the scene when Susie reveals herself to be Mother Suspiriorum. He says it's like um, akin to Jesus Christ walking into an Easter service. And that's like the kind of like earth-shattering tone I guess they were going for. And they enhance this with a red filter, which is the most overt tribute to Argento's cinematography. I think we see in the film. Well, there is actually a lot of the camera movements are actually mirroring. Maybe not a lot, but some of them are mirroring the original Suspiria. Like there's these the style of zoom they do, which is from the original film. They do that. Just total. They have those split diopter shots. It's very kind of like a retro aesthetic. The director, Luca Guadagnino, said he was looking at the 1970s films of Reiner Werner Fassbinder, who did a lot of movies kind of charting uh, the rise of capitalism in post-war Germany, which is kind of odd to me because, I mean, this film got me looking into Fassbinder, and he's now one of my favorite directors, but I actually don't see a huge affinity stylistically, but certainly this... And I mean, it's shot on film. I think it's worth mentioning. It's not a digital movie. And there's this very visible grain to it, you know, like it's got this texture that you don't really see in in digital films. So they're going for this definitely kind of, uh, I don't want to say dated, but um, this this aesthetic of something that's from the past. No, and I appreciate when filmmakers do that. Because it is a lot, by the way, a lot of extra work. When you, especially when you go to a studio, like, hey, guess what? We're going to shoot this on film. I'm sure they love that, because the price just goes whoop. Because you got to be paying for film instead of just digital. I read a I read an interview with the cinematographer uh, Sayambu Muktipram. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. But he says, and this kind of surprised me, I guess, um, just to hear it flatly stated from a cinematographer but he was like yeah i i only shoot on film i that's my rule i don't shoot on anything else all right so i mean like i guess good for him um he had previously collaborated with guadagnino on call me by your name which so that was film also that was also film um and shot the same year interestingly enough but wow yeah to go from that to this is is in the same year i mean just doing two films in the same year is enough yeah it's it's wild and having them both be good by the way too because roger corman would do that a lot but it's obviously (laughs) the quality is varying yeah uh and and just tonally like call me by your name it's outdoors it's positive it's you know kind of yeah from what i i haven't seen yet i want to but I, i remember it looking very bright it it, it's kind of a miracle. They shot it in a historic rainy season, and yet, I guess due to the efforts of the cinematographer, they... It looks like it's summer or something. It is. Um, it's, and it's, it's just a real... It's, it's like a warm hug of a movie. Like It's so inviting, and all of the food is nice, and the people are attractive, and everything's great. Yeah, and this one is more like a, a nice warm loogie in the face. <laughs> Yeah, it's this movie is almost like deliberately alienating, I guess, in in a lot of ways. Yeah, so many aspects of it are just so odd and 
uncomfortable. I mean, right down to uh, Tilda Swinton does a great job in this movie. Yes. I hesitate to say she carries it because uh, Dakota Johnson does a great job too, but... Yeah, I was very impressed. She's definitely doing a real... Like, Tilda Swinton is like firing on all cylinders she's playing three different characters granted for most of the movie she's only doing two but she plays this old man in a way that there's this show called baskets where louis anderson is playing this mother character i've been meaning to see that it reminded me of that because it's like you don't even see the actor anymore they just disappear and it's really odd because it's not like so many actors you can recognize they're doing a really great job of impersonating someone, but you always see the actor. Yeah. But in this case, it's like she's just gone. She's just and you know, there's granted there's you know prosthetics, so she looks like an old man, but just everything from the way she walks to how she talks to how she holds herself is just like you forget it's Tilda Swinton. Yeah, and I mean, I, I the second time I saw this, I saw it with friends, and none of them new which yeah if you didn't tell someone that's tilda swinton they might recognize that it's somebody in makeup but they wouldn't know who that was yeah they actually so i guess it's worth mentioning that part of the film's marketing was that tilda swinton was not credited as the performer it was you know when luca guadagnino was asked about it he said it's this old german man lutz ebersdorf and he's in the credits as you know, casted as this old man. Well, that's funny. Yeah, no. And f- they said that they never wanted to reveal it, but enough people guessed it. I mean, you can, yeah, it's, it would be hard to keep that going. Yeah. But I mean, it's remarkable because in that ending scene, she's playing three characters and they're all in the same scene i honestly didn't even think about that part of it because there's just so much to take in but yeah she has to be playing an old naked man who's just like terrified yeah, and weeping uh she has to she has to be playing um marcus a literal blob marcus who's a big blob woman uh who's about to who has to go from this very pompous like i am a I am basically a god to, oh my god, I'm going to die. <laughs> and then um, and Blanc. Madame Blanc, who uh, <laughs> basically gets her head cut off. Yeah, it's and and it's just, I mean, hats off to Tilda Swinton. You could spend like a whole hour talking about just what goes on in that last scene. Yeah. Uh, well, um, involving the last scene but spreading across all of the film i just want to mention the dancing in this movie because it is kind of a dance movie in a lot of ways it is that is one major thing um suspiria i think it's more about ballet yeah i mean the the 70s suspiria but it doesn't really you don't ever really get into the nitty-gritty of what it would be like to be a dancer and like having a, a performance to do what the specific performance is and yeah i i you sort of get into it but not like this is like a dance movie i read that there's only one scene in the original where you kind of actually see characters dancing and practicing dance. yeah and it's ballet yeah whereas in this movie it's more interpretive dance i'd say it's like it's it's definitely interpretive modern art like weird dance and there's an awful lot of it like full-on extended sequences of characters dancing and i think they're amazing they do a really good job um 
the central, other than the memorable kill scene we discussed, um, there is the the central scene is Volk, where the characters perform. I what I again I interpret to be some sort of response to fascism or the Holocaust, because Volk is. Uh, a Nazi concept, the concept of the people, the German people. And they're in these red ropes, it looks like. Yeah, like red ropes, and they have um, interesting makeup. It almost looks like death metal makeup. <laughs> yeah, It's oh, yeah. like you get like white along the eyes, and then there's heavy black eyeliner. Yeah, I hadn't considered that, but that actually, it is. Which is known as corpse paint. Yeah, it is reminiscent of that. I know that in the um, costumes themselves, uh, the designer sewed upside down pentagrams as like a little witchy detail. So I didn't even notice that. Wow. If you if you look at, um, I guess it would be it would be their chest, like the netting between. I guess the sh- I don't I can't talk about fashion, but <laughs> That's fine. they're they're there. If you look like very visibly. Uh, like a pentagram i guess to the thing the thing about the film is it's so layered that i can see how you can watch it over and over because i took a lot from it this second time around mm-hmm. and i imagine yeah if i went back i'd probably be looking for little pentagrams on their outfits the tape on the floor in that scene also incorporates a pentagram there's just a lot of pentagrams in that scene yeah yeah but that one's uh, that one's the more overt one because you see this pentagram kind of style uh written in uh patricia's notebook oh yes i think it's patricia's notebook that the old man who by the way uh this character plays a a psychologist i think yeah some sort of like uh i think it's more of like a psychoanal like freud type psychoanalyst uh he plays he plays dr klemperer who um whose wife anka played uh, significantly by Jessica Harper, who was the original Susie Banyan in Dario Argento's version, uh, disappeared during the war. Um, we find out that she she died in a concentration camp, Theresienstadt, um, and he's beset by grief, but he's also playing detective. He, there's a lot going on with this character. Yeah, for an old man, he gets around. <laughs> yeah, and I know this this character specifically is one of the elements that a lot of people really dislike about this version because this is yeah the the old man is one of the new one of the newer additions one of the things that stands out from the 2018 Suspiria yeah he is i mean he's largely separate from a lot of the dance storyline for I guess, like, most of the film. Most of the film, yeah. And it's just Tilda Swinton reckoning with the Holocaust, (laughs) you know? Like, he visits his wife's cottage in East Berlin, and he's like, oh, Anka, like, he's talking to his dead wife. And I can imagine why, like, a fan of Argento's Suspiria, he's like, oh, this is the remake of Suspiria, let's go. And then they go in, and it's just an old man, like crying in his cottage <laughs> like yeah because the the 70s suspiria is very contained not that this 2018 suspiria isn't also uh very contained but it at least it it goes out and shows you berlin whereas the the 70s suspiria is much more just about like being trapped in this one dance studio i mean i've read an excellent piece i wish i could remember the name 
where it argues that there are references to to German history in the original Suspiria. They're just very subtle. There might be, yeah, I'll admit that. Like, the scene where... I haven't seen the movie. There's a scene where a guy gets killed by dogs. Is that accurate? I think so. There's some sort of kill scene that takes place in a plaza that Hitler used for his speeches. Okay, so they did film it actually in Germany then, or parts of it. Maybe parts of it. I I mean, I don't I don't know, but it was a good piece, but in this film, it's not it's not even subtext. It's just... It's just text. Yeah, like, really driving home, like, this is Germany in 1977, you know, over and over. And I can see why a lot of people would be frustrated with that. Yeah, because the original is much more about almost this fairy tale. Uh, but I did want to get into this, too. They're both like fairy tales, but just different kinds. The 70s, Argento, Suspiria is more like a... Hmm, it sounds weird to say this, but more of like a Disney version where it's like fantastical. And and then this one is much more of like the original source fairy tale where it's like someone is feeding children to a witch or a bear mauls someone. (laughs) Yeah, I I think actually I read that um, the original Suspiria's cinematography was inspired in part by Disney movies with these very vibrant colors and like, you know the girl going off into the forest and, you know, encountering witches. And I think there's a very intentional fairy tale quality to it. Whereas, as you said with this, it's it's doing everything it can to ground it in a harsh reality in a very difficult time period for the people of Germany. And, you know, the cinematography, while I do think it is very beautiful, is certainly not, you know, immediately eye-catching or visually popping, if that makes sense. No, most of the film is very cold. That's the right word. It's like an unforgiving environment. And and I think one of the one of the other elements worth discussing is uh the conclusion, which I guess is the most explicit reckoning with German history in the entire movie, and one that a, a lot of people feel very ambiguous about, and by all indications, uh, the screenwriter wanted people to have complicated feelings about. So at the conclusion, Susie has overtaken the coven as the mother, and she visits Klemperer, who is shell-shocked, basically. There's actually a kind of comedic moment preceding it, where one of the surviving witches just kind of sends him out into the street after it's done. Yeah, kind of like he, like they've had a party, and, you know, he's the old man. She's like, okay, hope you get home safe now. And he's just, like, disheveled and staggering, and she's just, like, kind of humming along, and it's, like, it's, it's, it's somewhat amusing. But Susie visits him and tells him the fate of his wife. Which is very... It's very rough, you know, especially if you've been invested in finding out what the answer to this mystery is. It's basically, yeah, your wife died in a concentration camp. She was, you know, froze to death during a census count. You know, it's, it's, and that isn't like fantastical horror, um, you know, witch, mer- it's like really brutal history. It's not, you know, it's the reality of what happened to many, many people in Germany. And then, after divulging this information, 
she decides to wipe his memory of uh of Anka, of the witches, of she says all of the women of your undoing. And the director, uh, I should say the screenwriter, said he he wanted this he wanted the audience to be unsure about whether or not this is a benevolent act that she is, you know, taking away this suffering from him, or if this is her first step toward what he calls fascism, this this idea that she now has the unlimited power to reign over, like, anybody. Yes, because on the one hand, you could see it as a blessing where he'll probably go to his grave, never knowing the really harsh reality of what happened to his wife, and he might be able to think that she's still out there somewhere and that she's, you know, living out the rest of her days in happiness. Yeah. But on the other hand, he's never going to know what happened to his wife, which he clearly is very desperate to know, and then he's also not going to know anything about all of these women that have died in this coven. Yeah. Um, I know that the director, Luca Guadagnino, has taken the personal stance. He's not saying this is the objective reading of the film, but in his view, um, this is a villainous act to do, to take away the memory of an atrocity, much as Germany tried to suppress the memories of the Holocaust and the period immediately following the war, is a way of, of allowing it, like kind of retroactively validating it that, oh, you don't have to remember this terrible thing that we all did. And that to erase that memory is a sinister act, which is definitely a worthy interpretation of it, I think. It is. One of the interesting things about the portrayal of the character of Susie is that everyone for the whole film is saying that she is evil. A lot of them, you know, her mother says my greatest sin was putting her into the world. But she doesn't she doesn't play her character like she's evil. She just plays her character like she's a 18 something girl. Yeah. She's she's demure. She's not like, you know, uh, like, I mean, there are other girls like, I guess, Sarah, played by Mia Goth, is more outspoken. Uh, Patricia, obviously, much more outspoken. But Susie is just kind of this reserved, quiet person. She seems generally nice to to Sarah and to other the other girls. She does. But then at the end, when she reveals... And I want to get into this too, but when she reveals that she is Mother Suspiriorum, everyone who was with Mother Marcos, she just explodes their head. Like, there's no question. She's just like, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. Yeah, yeah. And that, so so to me, that could be, on the one hand, if you want to go with a more positive uh, interpretation of her character, she is, she is ridding society of the people who perpetrated this great evil in the way you know like kind of like a a new generation uh fighting against the nazi past yeah but on the other hand you could view it as somebody eliminating their political enemies yeah eliminating the competition and then by the end when you get into is she doing a positive act or a negative act with the old man it's important to note she is a supernatural being that is supposed to be a supreme witch. Yeah. And just because her her performance is deceptive because it, she's not like, you know, she's not like twiddling her thumbs. She's not doing a lot of the very overt traditional witch things. And yet it's more her actions than her words. She seems very charitable 
and kind when she enters the room. And her statement, um, we need guilt and shame, but not yours, I think is a valid one that in she's arguing that the guilt should fall on the people in power. But the notion that she's she's obliterating her enemies and then um wiping the memory of the one man who might alert authorities yeah it's it's very and i think it is worth remembering that while she is a young person she is the reincarnation of an old old idea which i think metaphorically you could read you know just another form of fascism returning which I think it's worth mentioning for the historical context, while, you know, many may agree with the ideas of the Bader-Meinhof group that, that this Nazi influence in society had to be rid of. They were a, a murderous terrorist group. Yeah, they were still blowing people up and kidnapping people. Many innocent people, as well as, as former Nazis. So... You know, even if her goal is noble and her enemy is is evil, as I think most people would agree, Marcus is is evil in this film. She's more of the traditional evil witch. Yeah, just because she's positioning herself against that doesn't mean her own actions are necessarily the right actions. It's it's a complicated ending, I think, in a lot of ways. It is, and I could see how people might be annoyed with that who are into the uh, Argento version, because the Argento version is much more overt. It's like, you know, this character's good, and these characters are witches, so they're obviously bad. I think one of the most ambiguous characters in this film is is Madame Blanc, who, in the coven, is the only one who seems to voice opposition to Marcus, because she, one of the early scenes where, where it becomes obvious that this is in fact a the cult of witches is they have a vote um, between who they want to lead the coven and it's Marcos or Blanc and she gets outvoted and of course those witches who voted for Marcos are ultimately killed by Susie at the end but she's this she's this figure who is doing terrible things to her students and exploiting them but she has this weird tenderness she like she genuinely cares about dance, which I don't get the sense that Marcus cares about dance. No. And um, with Susie, there's like a maternal or possibly even like slightly romantic connection she forms with her. It's very, it's very ambiguous. Yeah. But the day before the event where they're meant to, to make Susie the vessel for Marcus, you can tell she doesn't want to do it. Yes, and that gets into the complicated nature of the character as well, because you wonder, well, A, is it because she's, you know, feels like this maternal figure towards Susie or is romantically into her? B, is it because she's just the best dance student she's ever had? Yeah, I mean, and then, well, one of the other plot lines, there's so many plot lines running throughout the film, is Blanc is transplanting qualities from the other dancers onto Susie. You see that, like, when when Susie can't do the jumps, she looks at this other girl who can do the jumps and, like, does some witchy eye motion, and then the other girl has a seizure, and Susie can suddenly accomplish the jumps, 
and it's like she's she's shaping Susie to be this ideal dancer. Uh, it's it's just very interesting to me. I mean, there's so much to consider on that front with, again, I don't mean to be going on about Nazis, but <laughs> this is the lens I read the film through. The way, you know, Hitler and his deranged ideology was trying to create, you know, an ideal people at the brutal, terrifying cost of millions of lives and just people could be read as a parallel to the way that, you know, every time there's a positive act for Susie, like when she auditions the first time, it's coming at the extremely violent expense of another student. It's, in, it's interesting in that way. It is interesting. One thing I wanted to ask you is, there's some debate whether the character of Susie was kind of born as the reincarnated version of uh, Mother Suspiriorum, or whether she, as the film goes on, becomes Mother Suspiriorum. What do you think? It's, it's ambiguous. I think, okay, well, you see her drawing, like, Berlin in her notebooks as a child. So, and, and the way her mom talks about her, that she was my sin, you know, she was my, she was the thing that I smeared on the world. I do get the sense that she was born with this in her, but what I'm not sure about is when exactly in the film she realizes this, or if she's always known. Because it's kind of unclear. I read an interview with Dakota Johnson saying there's a moment in the film where she puts it together and understands herself as who she is, but I want the audience to figure out when that moment is, and I, I still haven't cracked it. I haven't either. I do think it's heavily implied that she was kind of born as this mother superior, because otherwise, why would you have the insert of the flashback where she's drawing Berlin? Yeah, I mean, that would... Although you could, it could be argued, because it does establish, even though she's in America, she's following the exploits of the Marcos company. So you could see it another way where she, even as a little girl, had been researching this dance company. Yeah. And knew it was in Berlin and then was kind of just drawing Berlin because she wanted to be a dancer. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting in that way. I Because there's a, I mean, maybe it's just Mother Suspiriorum being deceptive or something. But to me, there's a huge difference between Susie through the most of the film, this, you know, again, demure relatively quiet, kind of unassertive individual. And the Susie we see in one of my favorite scenes, this dinner scene before the ritual is carried out, where Susie and Blanc are staring at each other from across the table, and you can just tell that Susie knows. She knows what's about to happen. And I, I wonder when that epiphany occurs to the character. Like, when does she understand her purpose and what she's here to do? It is a good question. I do want to mention the music. It's done by uh, Tom York of Radiohead, and I think it's... I like it a lot. It is different than the original. I hate to keep comparing it, because I, I think it's kind of obnoxious when you can't separate two films, because it's like, obviously, this isn't the same. But from what I remember of the original Suspiria, it's more of a synth-based score. Yeah, it's like prog rock. Uh, I think the band is Goblin. Goblin, yes. And this one is much more uh, subdued, and I would say more of an alt-rock 
if you could yeah, call it, it that. I, I own the soundtrack album, and it covers a few different territories. I mean, you have the the notable musical moments are, of course, the songs when Tom York is actually singing lyrics over the the imagery. Obviously, uh, Suspirium is the is the title credit song. Beautiful kind of piano, very reflective and really the tone of of his music in the film is more i would say melancholy and pensive than like out in your face scary or anything like that yeah but that's that's kind of tom york in general yeah um although i find the the instrumental piece for Volk, the dance is like very to me anyway like dread inducing and ominous and very different from the piano melodies and that it has like these like loud synths and like drums and it's it's musically distinct from the other pieces in the film. It is. It's again going into forgetting like when you forget Tilda Swinton is this the old man character. You kind of forget that Tom York is doing the the score for the rest of the film. You're obvious obviously you know when he's singing because you're like that's yeah. Tom York. Um, but yeah, you, you almost forget because it is more, it goes into more of a traditional style of score, which is kind of playing off of the scenes and the tone of them. It's, I mean, I, I, I know that the score for the dance scenes in particular were very, you know, it was hard to choreograph because the dance scenes had been shot without music. I mean, they'd been shot with a different track, so he had to score music to fit to both the movements of the dancers and just the editing. But I think, I mean, it's one of my favorite scenes in the film. Um, that dance scene, the music is just so in sync with like these contorted movements they're doing. And it all feels very of a piece, especially with the editing, which I guess one of the qualities they teach you about film is you're not supposed to notice the editing. Right. But I feel like that's also... I mean, there are some modern schools of thought that think, for instance, with a novel, you're not supposed to notice the sentences. Yeah, well, that's... But I don't necessarily agree with that because there are so many different artistic styles that to say there's one artistic style that works above all the others, I feel like is kind of conceited. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, in this film, the editing is is quite noticeable, both when... I mean, I guess the most obvious instance is is, again, that... Uh, Olga's death, not death, but like crushing scene. You have this intercutting between Susie and Olga that's very, it's smooth, but it's it's like deliberate cuts and like all of that great, great transitional moments. And then you get the reveal scene where the heads explode, where not only is there this, you know, red gel and everyone's like naked and all this stuff is going on, this magical stuff, but the uh, speed actually slows down. It speeds up and kind of slows down. It's it's something with the frame rate in that it's like you can see the characters' shadows behind them, I guess, of the, of the pre- previous frames. I don't know exactly what the effect is, but it it's like an almost like jerky stop motion feel. I mean, needless to say, it's very different than the rest of the film, which is more traditional, which is a regular speed. Yeah, although I do think there are just certain 
cuts across the movie that like maybe one shot will be left on too long or you know the the cut will occur at like a weird moment that just serves to add to the kind of destabilizing disorienting vibe they're going i know that the opening scene when patricia runs into clumper's office it's like just jumping across to these details of the room like they cut to the book they cut to the pictures on the wall and it's very like jumpy editing and i think I mean, while some people, again, might find that irritating, I think it really serves the the general atmosphere that they were going for. It does. What do you think of the ending, and what do you think about the possibility of a sequel? Because I know that there is this shot at the very, very end after the credits where it shows Susie outside, and she's it looks like she's painting something on the wall with her hand or doing some kind of motion. There's a, a lot of... I mean, I've read a bit about it. It's it's a very brief shot, and there's not a lot of information in it. She's she's out in Berlin in the snow, and there's she's looking at someone or something off camera, and she makes a motion. Some people thought that was the same memory erasing motion that she did to Klemperer, which I don't know what that would. I mean, okay, I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it is a striking image to close on. I think, I mean, as for a sequel, I can't get enough of this movie, and I would love to see what 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 a sequel would look like. I know specifically Guadagnino has expressed interest in doing a movie about Marcos herself, but yeah, the, the, he did something like, oh, I have a I have a vision of her in the 12th century in like Scotland and like exploiting. It, I, it was kind of a weird pitch, but. I would be willing to see where they go with it, but I don't know if this movie did well enough. I, he says, I mean, the thing about Guadagnino, I've I've also been following um, him on Call Me By Your Name, of course, which remains his biggest success. And he has said that he wants to do sequels to that as well, which that I don't see really. Yeah, because isn't the whole point of that that it's sort of like, oh, and it doesn't work out. If it just had a sequel where they're together, it's like, yeah. well, this doesn't He work. said, like, wouldn't it be, like, interesting to see these actors, like, grow and change and, you know, see how this relationship goes across time? And I'm, I mean, like, to me... The end of Call Me By Your Name feels pretty final. It doesn't need another chapter to it. it. No, I will say, though, with this, there's so much source material. And, you know, um, unfortunately, Argento did three films. I guess you could <laughs> say it was a trilogy. And I've seen all of them. And I was very mm, I was uh, cautiously optimistic about Mother of Tears. And it is honestly one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I've heard that one is truly terrible. It's, and um, you feel bad but it's like you know he doesn't do the he doesn't have anything all that dynamic about the gels anymore he doesn't have colorful lights it's just kind of like yeah when i when i was seeing i mean like i know inferno also has like yeah, that visually it's still got a little bit of reds and blues when i saw footage from mothers of tear mother of tears which was made in like what the early 2000s yeah like 2000 five six it just looks like they shot what was there yeah no it's it's and you could get into well it could be a budgetary thing but i feel like surely dario argento can harness some cred to at least make it i mean because i mean i haven't 
I'll reiterate, I haven't seen his films, but isn't a large part of the appeal of them just the visual style he employs? Because Yeah, it is. And you kind of, his later films have kind of completely lost that. Like he did a version of Dracula, which I saw just out of morbid curiosity, which is also (laughs) one of the worst films I've ever seen. I've heard his take on Phantom of the Opera is terrible. The thing is, um, there's this show, Masters of Horror, that was on uh, Showtime. Yeah, I've heard of that. And I guess I've been thinking about it because Stuart Gordon recently passed, who did um, Reanimator. But he did a a wonderful entry, Stuart Gordon, uh, Dreams in the Witch House. Oh, yeah. uh, Which is an adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft um, story. But also, Argento has an entry in it, and I forget the name of it, but it's... It was solid enough, you know? And then you also had John Carpenter doing something called Cigarette Burns. Yeah, I've heard of that Which one. is, I think, uh, I hope this doesn't get back to him. I feel like it's the last good John Carpenter piece. Um, and I love him as a director, but there's something about this show where they gave them this sort of limited budget, but they were allowed to kind of do whatever they wanted. Yeah. Like a lot of the episodes just play like shorter films a lot of them are really interesting yeah i mean also just generally because we mentioned it r.i.p Stuart gordon um but you know respect but yeah uh i mean i don't want to i don't want this to be a just dario argento uh tangent especially since i haven't um right seen his films um but I mean, I don't get the sense that a lot of people watch his films for the plot, per se. There's almost never a plot, so... I mean, yes. you're watching it for, like, the bright colors and the maximalist, like, soundtrack and the crazy kills and all of that, and that's a valid... Yeah, later on, he did kind of move away from the gels, but even in stuff like uh, Phenomena with Jennifer Connelly. It's got enough interesting visual uh, visualizations and cinematography going on that it holds your attention. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's a there's a monkey in there with a knife. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, and that's like that's an interesting enough thing that to watch the film for, I feel. Right, but then you go into Mother of Tears and it just it's a bad Suspiria sequel. It feels soulless. Yeah. Like it feels like he was just like paint by numbers like all right well people want this so i'll do it it sort of reminded me of since i'm already getting myself in trouble i guess it sort of reminded me of clive barker has a book called um oh now i'm gonna forget the title of it but it was basically the death of pinhead um is it the hellbound heart no because the hellbound heart is the oh that's the first one the first one this is um the scarlet Scarlet gospels Gospels, that's it okay and i wanted to like it so much because i'm such a big clive barker fan and him as an artist even like i love his paintings and it was also, yeah, it just felt like paint by numbers. Like, I know he got sick. Yeah. Like, he had, he was in a coma shortly, like, during. You know, he had a really botched dental procedure and went into a coma. Yeah, that's terrible. Uh, but it was, yeah, but similar, you know, it felt much like Mother of Tears, uh, Scarlet Gospels. It felt very, like, by the numbers, like, people want this, so I'm just doing this. Yeah. Um, Which is something I don't like in a sequel. It's like, if you're going to do it, do it because you want to do it. And and it's something I don't like in a remake either, which is why, I, I mean, whatever you think of the film, you, I mean, you have to give it major credit for not trying to please people and, like, predicate it solely on the basis of, oh, this is a Dario Argento remake and people will go see 
a Dario Argento remake. Like, it is definitely trying to do its own thing that was not just, as you used uh, to describe Mother of Tears, like a paint-by-the-numbers take on Suspiria. Exactly, and I think, yeah, that is the power of the film, is it tries to be its own film. Even if that approach is flawed, or it didn't work for you, I think it does, I mean, in an, in a, I, I mean, I tend to rant about the movie industry on this podcast, but it's fine. In a time where we're seeing so many just soulless reboots of classic properties and and remake, or even just making a film to establish a canon, so you can later put that character into a different film. Yeah, it's just it. I mean, it's refreshing to me to see a film that's like, you know, F you, we're going to make a two and a half hour long film about German witches and like weird mother and issues. And like, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's refreshing to see that. It is refreshing. And I do think that the more films I see, the more you realize that the, with limited exceptions, the independent films are kind of what paved the way because there's less... There's less cooks in the kitchen, there's less budgetary restraints, and they're more willing to take chances because there is obviously less money involved. Yeah. Um, I mean, even if you look at the, uh, if you look at horror cinema, for instance, and the, you know, some of the hugest horror films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like uh, Last House on the Left and things that, you know, kind of catapulted people like Wes Craven and John Carpenter to the forefront, they were doing those as independent films. Yeah. With a very limited budget. And that was sort of like, and then afterwards that just became, this is what horror movies are. Yeah. I mean, I, I liked Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I think part of its efficacy is that it feels like it had a budget of about zero. <laughs> like Yeah, there's I mean they needed a van, they needed gas for a van, and they needed a chainsaw with gas for a chainsaw, then they needed to pay actors. That was about it. Yeah. And a house. They needed a house. And some spooky bone decorations. But I mean like it feels like and this is part of again its efficacy. It makes it weirdly plausible that it's just people running around in you know, the wilderness. I want to say Toby Hooper said he shot it like a documentary. That sounds right. Which has right. a lot of the power of the film is it's not, you know, getting into the people who think that film should, you shouldn't notice the edits. You don't really notice the edits too much in Texas Chainsaw because no. mostly you're just like, oh my God, here's this crazy person wearing human skin. Yeah. And I think it strips that trope down to the barest elements and what makes it so effective. Um, and I think a low budget helps you do that. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have this, which is for a for a movie of its type, a substantially large budget. Like this is clearly a movie that had money put into it. Yeah, and I think yeah, going forward, I think that is very much because of the streaming services. Yeah. And I think as we go ahead, we're gonna be seeing or into the future, we're gonna be seeing more and more films like the films that are willing to take chances are going to come from the streaming services because they have more of a they're not banking on one film they're banking on repeat yeah. viewership so they can take something that's going to wig people out and toss it up because they a it's they can afford it <laughs> you know amazon prime is yeah. amazon isn't like you know destitute um neither is no. netflix or hulu or any of those but they so they can get these really talented people and go, hey, we'll give you creative freedom and we'll give you maybe less of a budget than you'd have with a major studio, but you can have creative freedom. And so you get more dynamic films. 
Yeah, that's true. Um, it's, I mean, with, um, with Suspiria, I mean, sets like that and, and period detail like that, you can't, you couldn't get from like A24 or something like that. You have to have money behind you in order to, to make that. And again, as you said, Amazon can afford it if this movie doesn't do amazingly well. It isn't a huge loss for them. So that, that is one of the benefits of streaming, I think, is that a lot of the most interesting films I've seen definitely last year were Netflix films or, you know, other streaming service films. I mean, like um, Hulu, for instance, did an adaptation of Nathan Ballingrud's, uh The Visible Filth, which was changed to Wounds. I haven't seen that yet, but I really want to. Which was interesting. And then you've got something like Netflix. I I think I've mentioned it before, but they one of the first original films they did, Beasts of No Nation, which was Carrie Fukunaga, which I'd love to cover at some point, mm-hmm. uh, was just this brilliant film that was just so brutal. And it looked, it looked like it would have been a movie that you would have seen in theaters. And honestly, if it hadn't been a Netflix film at that time, when it was like, when the, you know, the awards were still poo-pooing streaming services yeah i feel like it would have been up for a ton of awards yeah i mean look at last year they had marriage story which is a great film i thought i i really yeah um i haven't seen it yet but i've heard good oh i recommend it um it's a little bit of a tough set at times but it's it's a very good film and the irishman which yeah three and a half hour film. yeah scorsese was talking about how when he was looking for funding for this film every studio would say okay you can make it but it can't be three and a half hours and scorsese was like no it this is the <laughs> for better or worse this is the length that it needs to be and netflix said we'll give you the money we'll give you a four-week theatrical release and then it'll go up on streaming and you can do whatever you want, which, I mean, that is very appealing and good for good for filmmakers that have visions that wouldn't necessarily conform to a studio executive's vision. Yeah, and to a certain extent, I don't want to be a jerk about this because it is a business. Yes, you know, it is a it business. Is art, but it's also a business, so... If you're trying to make back your money, you are sort of trying to hit as wide of an audience as possible. And you're trying, you're sort of trying not to piss that many people off because the less people you piss off, the more people will see the film and the more target audiences and this and that. Yeah. Uh, But there's, but I feel like there's room for both. And I feel like everything doesn't have to try to be that movie that's number one at the box office that gets however many millions of tickets sold. Yeah. I mean, Suspiria definitely doesn't seem like it was made to please a lot of people. And no, <laughs> it didn't. It didn't please and a lot didn't. of people. I, I mean, but for me, it felt almost, it felt really good to see a movie that was that weird and unapologetic, like about concerns like we're going to make a movie about 1970s German politics that most Americans know nothing about. And we're going to throw in some witches and extreme gore and nudity. Right, because it's like so if it was just the period piece about Berlin, you'd get the one type of audience. Yeah. And if it was the horror film, you get the other. And then you combine it so you limit the audience even more. Yeah, you, you alienate like... The, the German history people were frustrated by all of the horror elements. and Yeah, because they didn't come They're for coming that. for, like, you know, the legacy of the Holocaust in, in the Bader-Meinhof era. 
And meanwhile, the horror fans are like looking for like, you know, well, various things, but like certainly fans of Argento's film were probably not expecting this type of take. And it, it alienates both audiences, but for someone like me, <laughs> it's like, oh my god, this is an amazing, weird film, and that's why it's earned a large deal of of my respect. No, I would, yeah, I like it too. The fact that I sat through a two-and-a-half-hour film twice and I have, like, no attention span should be yeah. evidence of the fact that it's a very good film and that at least I liked it a lot. Yeah, I've seen it, like, I want to say seven times <laughs> at this at this stage. And that's a, that's a huge time commitment, so obviously you adore uh, yeah, this film. Yeah, I don't know. It's, like a, it's almost like this is a strange thing to say, but, you know, if I'm feeling down <laughs> or I had a bad day... I can always go to Suspiria <laughs> to brighten my mood, which, I mean, it's not the first pick for a comfort movie, but it, it works for me. Well, there you go. Uh, but one one thing uh, I wanted to touch upon, and I know we may be running low on time, but um, I wanted, just because we've we've been mentioning Dario Argento across this film, um, it is worth, across this podcast, I should say, um, it is worth mentioning uh, that Dario Argento is not a fan of this film. He did not enjoy it. Although he did credit Guadagnino with knowing exactly how to place a chair or something like that, which, fair. But he said that he much preferred films like Get Out and Hereditary, which are also part of the... Uh, I, I'm not using the term elevated horror but the kind of interesting sideways... I just call them good horror good films. Good horror films, um, yeah. Yeah, I think Elevated... I mean, I could go on and on we, about we this could have as a, whole... a lifelong horror fan, but I think Elevated Horror, I don't like the term because it... It implies that there's a... It's like insinuating that horror itself yeah. is bad. So to elevate it would make it like an actual watchable film as opposed to just a very good horror film, which shows that there are, you know, some horror films that are bad, some that are medium, and yeah, some that are really Yeah, elevated good. implies uh, a category that, that it's above. It implies it ascends from this ghetto yeah, which of is, horror. Which is... Which, unfortunately, yeah, I mean, there are people that do think that horror films are just, you know, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, which is <laughs> fine. It, it's a whole... But that's not... That's not the whole picture. Yeah. That's like saying that like blockbusters are only superhero films. That's also not the whole picture. Yeah. Although it's most of the picture. Well, so, but you have across the 2010s, a kind of horror movie renaissance of a type, you know, I... Well, you know what it is. It's giving voice to people that traditionally have been voiceless. Yeah. But so, so Dario Argento was saying he, he did not like this film um, and he much preferred... Films like Get Out and Hereditary. And while, while I do like this film very much, obviously, and also am a, a lover of Get Out and Hereditary, uh, Suspiria, it's true, doesn't seem to sit so easily with that crop of horror movies in, in the 2010s. It's kind of... I, it's, there's, there's a 
difference to it, I get. I, I was wondering, you know, how does Suspiria sit with, you know, Get Out, Hereditary, um, uh, The Babadook, Midsummer, all of those? Like, what? where does it fall on that continuum? That is an interesting question. It's almost like it's completely outside of it. Yeah. Because, yeah, you can, you know, if you were mentioning... Like, oh, a really good – like, for instance, say you had a casual film fan that wasn't the hugest horror fan. If I was going to tell them, you know, oh, a recent movie that was really good, I would say Get Out or Hereditary yeah. because it's a little easier to go into those just as a film fan and go, oh, this is really well made and it's scary. Yeah. And it's also not two and a half hours. And and they have – I mean, they're, they're deeply intelligent films. They are, but this one is like – Get Out – I mean, Get Out and Hereditary have a fairly – clear message or content to it like yeah that's true though but that would be part of the reason i would recommend it to just casual film fans yeah no no i agree it's not gonna you're not gonna be spending hours like what did that part mean it's like racism is bad and demons are bad yeah i mean you know obviously a common concern across the new horror film trend has been grief so you see that with the babadook and hereditary and midsummer and you have race with um with get out you have feminism and religion and the witch and you have you know and and these films you have whatever the lighthouse was trying yeah whatever the lighthouse was um but you But you know what actually mentioning the lighthouse I do think if I was going to kind of uh put this 2018 Suspiria next to other films I would say the lighthouse is another good one because it's not it's sort of archaic in some of its design yeah and it's an interesting film that you can enjoy as a horror fan but i don't know that all horror fans would enjoy it yeah i i saw the lighthouse once i was hugely excited for it because i loved the witch obviously and i was i guess i had the response to the lighthouse the initial response that a lot of people had to Suspiria, which was less like, oh, I didn't enjoy that or or I did enjoy that, um, and more just, huh. <laughs> like Yeah. I mean, to be fair, that was my kind of take on this version of Suspiria when I first saw it was okay. Yeah. It was honestly your love of the film that made me go back and want to revisit it. Because if I hadn't had someone like you, like, it's this really, like, amazing film. Like, I obviously appreciated it and enjoyed it, but it is definitely a head scratcher at times. I I mean, it's... And I, I have, like, my, my working interpretation of it through this lens of German history. But when I watch it, there are still things that just confuse me. Like, it seems like a lot of the choices, it seems like all of the choices had some sort of intentionality behind them. But it's not always clear what the intent is, you know? like Yeah, I mean, there are scenes, for instance, where there's a light in... Um... Susie's room while she's dreaming. Yeah. You could say, well, that's like the spirit of the witches, but it's never really explained what that is. And even at the end of the film, you're kind of left like, well, what was the light then? Yeah. The, in fact, like a large part of Susie's dream sequences. Don't make much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like speaking of art films, like they just become (laughs) completely surrealist and you're like, ah, what? So like, I'm, I'm trying to recall. So you have like a doll that opens its eyes. You have a woman 
rubbing intestines on her chest, uh, glass shattering, um, a, more graphically, a woman performing what seems to be a sexual act with like a meat hook. And it's like, yeah, what what is this? I mean, and it seemed like these images were obviously deliberately chosen, but like, what is the what is the meaning behind them? And and I, you know, one of the things I appreciate um, about Suspiria and the Lighthouse, although I think I need to rewatch the Lighthouse before I provide like a thumbs up or thumbs down uh, verdict on it, is is this this commitment to not necessarily needing to explain certain things it's true and like because well again and this is not to denigrate these films but get out and hereditary are very clear and straightforward in their concerns like anybody can watch get out and understand that this is about the african-american experience in like a post-obama america exactly and and hereditary you can easily take away you know, this is about grief. This is about inherited mental illness. I mean, it's the title is hereditary. I mean, it's not right. It's yeah. not necessarily. It's not unsubtle, but it is direct in its concerns. Whereas this film, a lot of the time, it's unclear what is necessarily even happening in the plot. <laughs> Far less the point of what what like the what the what the meaning or the thematic content of it is but i think there's an air of mystery to it and the idea that maybe not everything in this film has like a clear purpose it's just kind of some dark amalgamation of like you know german history and like women's art and and witchcraft you know just like this kind of hazy interpretive fog which could put some people off but again you know that's what i go for well but that is part of the reason i think that you love the film so much is it holds up to repeat viewings because as much as i love films like get out and hereditary they don't they would obviously hold up to a rewatch but i don't really have the same desire to rewatch them as i do with something like Suspiria or with the lighthouse where you're trying to figure out is that supposed to mean something more well you rewatch get out and hereditary to i get i enjoy is maybe the wrong word especially for hereditary but yeah. to appreciate the experience the storytelling the acting on display the the thematic uh qualities of the films and you know to be scared or entertained whereas movies like Suspiria and the Lighthouse you go back to figure out like what the hell was that movie about and i mean there are so many interpretations of it that we haven't even discussed on this like there's a whole feminist angle to this film you know the 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 religious upbringing Susie like there's a lot of other layers that I don't think you can cover in one podcast or absorb in one watch of the movie so no and I mean even this episode is like ballooning and we're <laughs> obviously sort of cutting off the analysis at the knees so yeah I mean we don't want the uh the podcast to be as long as the film um, but I mean, while it is a challenging thing to do to sit down and rewatch a two and a half hour movie about German witches that is at some points just dour and grim in, in ways that 
I guess are less appealing than the more heightened emotions of Hereditary or Get Out, which, you know, while they're very brutal um, scenes in those films, there's there's a quality of humanity and emotion to it that you don't always see in Suspiria. You don't, these people don't always feel like normal people undergoing some sort of supernatural phenomena. It's... No, there are, there are people that never seem normal in this film, the whole film. Yeah, they're just kind of cryptic riddles of human beings that, I mean, Susie, while Dakota Johnson is excellent in this role, for most of the film is kind of an ambiguous blank slate, and you don't know exactly if she understands what's happening to her, if she, what her ultimate goals are. And it's just, it's just archaic is, is, is a word you used earlier. And I think it's an accurate descriptor. It's archaic in a way that a lot of films don't try to be. I would say it's outside of time, which on the one hand is why people are alienated by it. But on the other hand, some of the best films that have ever uh, been made are sort of like that. For instance, even though you can watch, say, John Carpenter's The Thing and know that it's an 80s film, it is sort of also timeless, which is why it's had such a prolonged life. Yeah. And I feel like that will probably be the fate of this version of Suspiria, is that, you know, a decade later, people will still be watching this and talking this about it. This one is built to last. It, it kind of reminds me in... It's so, it's so not of a time that it's like, timeless and it's so not for everyone that i feel like it's gonna get a very loyal cult following it reminds me of enemy in some ways actually in that it's it's out to baffle you but in that sense it's kind of it's built to last and it like i feel like you could write a paper about this film and like deep dive analyzing it in a way you might not be able to do with films that are more straightforward in their concerns and and storytelling like you know classic uh canon of confusing movies i mentioned persona last time um i i haven't seen mulholland drive but christopher burke on facebook has compared this film to that in the sense that it's kind of a dreamlike riddle of a movie i mean it's just it's the type of film that i do think will will hold up past its initial uh i guess birth date or or expiration date i think so too um but anyway so yeah this has been this has been a long episode which is you know proof of the fact that Superior 2018 has a lot going for it and there's a lot to take from it it's an onion that you can peel away and every time find a new layer of onion yep even if you hate it you can't deny that it's an onion indeed um and on that note and on that note i'm sean m thompson i'm brian suspiria levin o'connell and this has been celluloid citizens and yeah stay tuned we're gonna have a lot more stuff to cover hopefully in shorter formats for you to listen to we will figure it out good night good night good night